is Fashion Art. In this new podcast series, we bring a fashion designer together in conversation with an artist whose practice inspires them. Hello and welcome to Art Matches Fashion. I'm Danielle Rodeutchen and I'm delighted to present this series brought to you by luxury fashion destination Matches Fashion. In this episode, the fashion designer Gabriella Hurst speaks to the artist Laurie Simmons. Gabriella hails from Uruguay and has designed her own label from New York since 2015. Recently, she's also been appointed as the creative director at storied French fashion house Chloe. Laurie rose to fame in the 70s as part of the so-called pictures generation, alongside the likes of Cindy Sherman and Richard Prince. Known for her meticulously staged photographs featuring dolls, her images encourage re-evaluations of our own constructed reality, as well as inspiring the film Tiny Furniture, made by her daughter, the writer and actress Lena Dunham. The conversation between Gabriella and Laurie took place over the internet in summer 2021. We met through our friend Glenda Bailey at the at a Lincoln Center event, and uh, and then we have a few people in common, such as John, John Newman, the sculptor, and Christina Ehrlich, the stylist. And John did a beautiful earring collaboration with you. We almost didn't meet because. Um, I went with my friend, the artist Marilyn Minter, and we weren't seated together. And I was feeling really shy that night. And um, I said, I think I'm going to go after the performance because I'm not sitting with you. And it always surprises people that I say I'm shy, but I'm, I can talk about my work, but actually can be socially shy. And my friend Marilyn said, you have to stay. I'm not allowing you to leave. And then I stayed and I was seated between you and Glenda Bailey. And it was just the best, most extraordinary night for me to, you know, I already knew Glenda, but for me, I wouldn't have met you if Marilyn hadn't forced me to stay. But you know, I have the same thing. I just find myself, I can feel very confident when talking about my work. And I actually remember a conversation that we had at that night that stayed with me. Um, But I also have the, I have that thing that I get very kind of socially shy or I'll have an event that I will go and I don't understand why I'm so uncomfortable in this event. And I had a friend, my best friend said, did you laugh? Did you have a laugh? And then, and then I realized I didn't. So if I don't have a laugh, I know it's not a good, it's not a good, it's not a good situation, but the, um, the conversation that stayed with me was when we talked about our professions. Cause I, I, when people say, Oh, you're an artist, when it comes to, to my work, I always say, no, I'm a creative, you know, I work on a creative field, but I don't consider myself an artist because I feel the artist needs to self-express. Right. And that's their only duty is to self-express. And while, what I'm trying to do is a communication with our women, our client. And, and so it's, it's not, it's not as, but you actually were, were, you had a very interesting answer to that. What did I say? Oh, I'll, I'll remember. You said, 
I have to do that too. <laughs> I do. I do. I have to think about, like you, I have to imagine someone who's looking and what they might think and where they might go with my ideas and if they will understand or, I mean, there's always that. I mean, I think we all come from a place of being little kids making something and saying, mommy, look at this. Look, look at what I just made. And we kind of never get over that. True. Feeling that there's some, we need a kind of, you know, call and response in what we do. Yes, the, the approach that I have when it comes to creativity is to think that I don't possess it. It's not mine, right? It just comes through me. I take no, no proper ownership because uh, it, it is a collaborative work in, in, my, in my field. You know, it's like I can come up with the crazy ideas, but then it takes somebody more crazy than me that has to sit down and not that thing that I want, not leather for hours, you know? So it's... Yeah. It, it's this very collaborative process where I feel that, yeah, I can have this vibe to the idea where I feel there's, it's communicating something uh, that will have some resonance, that will have that, look, mom, what I did effect, uh, that love that you put into it, but it takes the collective madness, I would say, that, ev that is contagion, and we all have to believe that that's the way we're going. I think that, there have been historical precedents for artists feeling like mediums, you know, like the ideas pass through them. They don't really understand how or why, and then they make things. And I think in the 21st century, there are more and more visual artists that work like you that need teams and teams of people to realize their vision. So I think I'm just still pushing on the fact that I think of fashion designers as artists. Looking at it from the outside, that is not the way I, I perceive it. Yeah, I, I, um, you're resistant to that. I know, I know. I maybe, maybe, maybe I'm shy about it. Maybe I, I hold artists with such uh, respect that I don't find myself, um, in that same spectrum. But I, I definitely, the most joy I have is when I'm sketching, when I'm doing my own sketchings and my own, my own drawings. And, and I just had this, uh, I had a little, drawing of mine that got published in the Serpentine Gallery book with other with other um, incredibly talented people, way more talented than that I'll ever be. And and I and I was just very proud. So I do think that there's a part of me that at one point is just going to dedicate herself to that communication. Uh, but it's it's kind of, you know, right now my work is in in here and this has become my medium. Thank you for sending me your book. Okay. And so big on your screen. Let us see it there. Right, it's amazing. I yeah. mean, I mean, your work is amazing. It's it's in the sense of um, the timelessness. You know, when you're you're when you're looking at some of your work from the from the seventies, it still feels so relevant to today. What it's communicating. That's like the artist's dream. That's like the highest compliment you can pay an artist is to say that the the work from a long time ago looks relevant today it's just what you know it's at least what i dream about what i hope for well i i think you're 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 really are um one of <laughs> new york's best treasures 
I, I grew up in a ranch, mm -hmm. but your children were brought up in New York. My children are being brought up in New York and they have a special type of cool. Mm -hmm. I sit with my 13 year old twins and I'm like, guys, you, I know you're smarter than me. I just have more life experience, but you surpass my intelligence level and my capacity. They have that, mm -hmm. you know, kind of um, priorities, you know, they know where their priorities lie very well. That's what I, they're not, uh, they're not blinded by the light so easily. Well, I think that we, although we grew up in very different places in very different ways, we both had very limited kinds of upbringings that were very, we were both very protected and what we saw, I mean, you were uh, much more involved in, in, in nature than I was by nature of the way you grew up. And yeah. I was um, in, you know, one of the original post-World War II American um, suburban environments, which yeah. was total fantasy, a completely, um, a completely self-created environment that was, there was yeah. nothing real about it. So it was like growing up in a, in a, in a visual fantasy, um, although it was quite stifling the way that, and, and limiting. Um, did, your, did your mom join the workforce during Second World War? Or no. was she a, a stay-at-home mom? No, she, my father um, would, would never have approved of that. It was considered, um, it was considered um, to be a shortcoming of the, of the marriage of the family if the woman had to go to work. And, you know, it's sad to think about all the powerful friends of my mother's I knew who would have just killed it in the workforce if they had been running the country or running the garment industry or doing the things that mm -hmm. their husbands were doing. Oh, my God. You know, you know, it's I was the first. I, I grew up in Uruguay in a very particular time in history where it was a dictatorial period ship when I was born. So Uruguay, even if I was born later than you did, it was a, still a very traditional upbringing in general, but it had the edge that it was a family that's been there for a while. We were ranchers off the grid. It was like a tribe. We, 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 um, we walked by our own rules, you know? It wasn't too much what society dictated because my family was there before even Uruguay was formed. So it, they were a bit of their, like their own uh, tribe, but the, the, the men and the mentality was quite till matches. But my mom, which that's her, was competing in rodeo in, when she was 18 years old in a men-driven sport. So she was very, I had a very different upbringing that most of my, my, my counterparts in, in Uruguay, my, my friends and childhood friends. And I was the first one of my generation to get a job at 17 year old at that. And that's because I lived abroad in Australia for a year. It was not well looked even like in, I'm talking about nineties here, right? Early nineties, if a girl, would go to work after after um, uh, after you would only work after college, let's say. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I was the first of my generation to get a job at 17 years old in a flower shop must tell you something. Wow. Yeah, I imagine you're, you know, from what I've pieced together and read your interviews, I imagine you as this like feral beast riding around this ranch with no 
um, I mean, maybe you had to come home for dinner, but <laughs> I just imagine you having all of this freedom. It was, you know, it was when I look, it really took me a, a long time. And only recently, I would say in the past, I guess when I inherited my father's ranch and my husband telling me, you don't understand, but what you think is normal is not normal. But it was a very specific way of being abroad and very, uh, um, very remote. Like I was trying to explain to my kids and they were thinking how wild it is that you look and you just see horizon. Like for me, it's so weird that I just see, you know, it's my vision is, is, is um, really far out in the way of when you look at things uh, because you're used to think, seeing through the horizon of nothing, of the nothingness. So you're this, you see, you're in the mercy of nature in a lot of situations. And that you learn how to navigate those, those um, dangerous situations that maybe Maybe it's a reach and I should leave this to the fashion historians, but I, I feel like I see that sense of freedom in your, in what you make, but I can just imagine, even though I see still pictures, you know, there's a, there's a sense with what you make that you can almost imagine the clothing um, blowing in the, in the wind, you know, there's a kind of sense of movement, like it's always moving in what you make. And I'm sure that you are still, and for years will be bringing that experience into, into what you design. I mean, I, it took me so many years to leave my childhood behind in my work and get to the early part of my adult life. And I'm sure you're still spinning out from the way you grew up. That's very hard. Those influences are super hard to shed when you're making things because we're so porous. We're like little computers then. We're just taking in so much so fast. And I think that as makers of things that we're digesting, we're, we've digested that and we're, we're sort of, we have to get rid of that before we can move forward in our work, you know? I don't know if it's because I'm, you know, 45 and I'm like, reaching my midlife crisis that I feel like more like I'm getting to my teenage years. <laughs> but that's how I felt. Years. I felt like there was always a, like a 20 year, at least a 20 year gap from where I was making my work. And, you know, I remember point where I was making work about the first time I ever went abroad, went to Europe. There's always like, I'm always reaching back. I can't help it. And, and what's in the present is about sort of making sense out of something in the past but trying to do it without nostalgia and sometimes without too much tenderness or um you know just to i always i'm also concerned with bringing it into the present moment which in your work you have to do you're almost forced to do i i don't follow trends right so i'm the type of designer that that always being attracted to timeless design right like it's you have to make a piece that will last decades to come and it's not about it's it's relevant and not no matter what time you not no matter when you wear it it should be that should be the ultimate goal i don't i don't believe in this um kind of discarding newness i i always think new is not always better but mm -hmm. it's interesting as you were talking i was thinking about that a lot of the ranching values maybe they're coming through my creativity in a subconscious way 
but they're really conscious when it comes to business. They vary the values that are con- how you should conduct yourself personally and business-wise. For me, there's no like no difference. But th- those teachings from the ranch are really valuable in the in the perspective of making it mm-hmm. through New York and making it through this year. They're being my my building blocks. Those those kind of that moral compass that. That rides you to that drives you to do the right thing. You're so lucky to have that, and I think it is really important. And I think also, um, a lot of young women aren't taught those kinds of values, and they have to pay very close attention to what's around them and to their families if they believe in their families. I mean, I always thought like getting through the high school um, that I, you know, the high school I was in for four years. I, you know, the the social life there was so so cliquish and so venomous and so difficult. I always thought if I can make it through this high school and get out of here alive, the rest of the world might be easy. I mean, it was, you know, kind of terrifying, but um, I I love the idea of, of um, you taking the values of what you learned and um, using them, using them somehow in the way you approach both your work and your business. Because I do think those things are so interconnected. Yes, and and you know, um, I also had a very traumatic high school experience with people being so mean. I guess that when the when you're a bit different, you're like an easy target. When you think differently, when you act differently, when you don't want to fit in completely, when you don't just can't fit in. I have a fashion fan question for you, based on something you said before. I when I really responded when you were talking about how you aim for this kind of timelessness. And I wanted to know which designer for you is um, the most timeless in terms of your admiration, you know, for them. And I would say that if there's a designer in history that I would, I, there's many in the sense of the passion of the work, but I think Elsa Scaparelli for me had another level just because of, who she was collaborating at the period she was collaborating with, you know, it's, it's just her, her. And also that she was weaving social entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. You know, her, when her first collection was made by Armenian refugees, she had a knitwear collection. It was Armenian refugees. So she was already trying to see how she could help others in her work. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I always respect anyone whoever uses his platform or whatever skill they have to to the work of of others you know and and so to the help for others to be of service and i and i've always admired her incredible talent and her her appeal that she had for these these incredible artists Mm -hmm. i love that you picked her because when i was um first moved to new york i you know i couldn't afford anything you know i would buy jelly shoes and spray them, spray paint them a different color to match my outfit every night. But every time I found a great dress or a shirt and I would go out somewhere and someone would say, oh, I love that. And I'd say, oh, it's a scaparelli. I just always said it. <laughs> I just used that as my. Talking about artists and, 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 and female artists, is there any female artist that you feel that has inspired you but had never gotten notoriety? Well, that's, that's a hard question. 
you know, I'm so proud of my generation, the generation mm -hmm. of women that I came up with, um, like my friend Marilyn Minter, Cindy Sherman, Barbara, yeah. um, all of the, you know, all of the uh, rules that we broke and things that happened to us. And there are so there are so many women I know who I feel should have more. Um, there are so many painters, um, people I know. Um, and it's always hard to say people are underrated because it's embarrassing for them. But um, I have a I have a lot of confidence in the work of women I know. Um, I asked you a question because I had this experience when I went to Moscow like five six years ago, and I went to the museum of um, their their museum of modern art, and there were all these female impressionists from the 1920s because that I've never heard. And it was the most impressive, um, the most impressive uh, works I've, I've seen in a long time. And I, and I, and it's just, it was a mo I mean, obviously there's always the good, the bad and the ugly, but one of the good things about the movement that put men and women at the same level in that mentality, not in reality, but um, but I I felt that there's there's so many hidden gems in oh, our yeah. history, and I think that one thing that's very exciting about this period that we're in is that history, art history, is being rewritten. Yeah, just the way American history is as we speak. Yeah. I mean, all of this arguing about critical race theory is just it's very it's very disheartening that there is opposition, but it's very heartening that this conversation can come up. Yeah. Art history is being rewritten because we know how choices are made. This is true in fashion. This is true yeah. in every industry. There are gatekeepers. And when you realize who the gatekeepers are and who they let in and who they leave out, there is a history that is being rewritten now that involves women artists, under-recognized women artists, BIPOC artists. Mm -hmm. um, the, and it's all emerging. There's a there's a show in New York I haven't seen yet. Um, at Nicola Vassell's gallery um, by an, an artist, a photographer who started working in the 70s named Ming Smith. And mm -hmm. I've seen another show of the work. It is so beautiful. And when I saw it and realized that I hadn't known the work, I was shocked. And, and there keep being these treasures that are being unearthed um, of, of people that were working at the same time as I was, but somehow I didn't know the work or the work didn't, you know, hadn't come to my attention. I, I, I think that in a way, the other parallel that we're leaving besides the um, conversation is the, also the dangers of um, the echo chambers that we're leaving, right? In, in how, um, I, I've been saying for a while that, I don't think algorithms are that smart because I just have my experience with my own phone and I don't think my algorithm is that smart, the one on my phone. It just really doesn't find my, my emails right. But I'm feeling that right now we're living in this reality where your, your, your movies are being chosen by you, what you're listening is being chosen by you, what you are, uh, who you're dating is being chosen by you, your analytics are being examined all the time and one has to be very, very careful not to just drop in the echo chamber with with similar like 
minds, right? I could not agree with you more. And I feel like all of the work that I've been making in the last, a lot of the work I've been making in the last decade and continue to make is about identity and is about um, how, what our identity really is and how we change our identity and how we can hide our identity online. And I don't mean just by assuming um, an, another, assuming another identity or another self. I mean, the ways that we can take an app and change the way we look. And, you know, there's an app, some, someone showed me an app for stretching yourself to make yourself thinner. I'm sure that's an old one, but it was new to me. Just the ways we can change our face and present ourselves so that um, the expectation is so great that it can only lead to disappointment in human interaction. And that's so much of what I focus on what I've been focusing on in my work. And I always say kind of jokingly, but it's not that much of a joke that I'm way too involved in contemporary culture and the internet for a person my age. <laughs> but I'm so curious about what is out there and how it is affecting um, both the younger generation and my generation. You know, at the same time, I reject my friends who are total Luddites who say, I'm sorry, I can't you know, I can't deal with the internet, I can't deal with the phone, I can't deal with Instagram. I think it's so important to understand what's around you culturally and not just shut down to it, you know? You know, I tell this to my husband because my husband grew up on, on, on Fifth Avenue in New York and somehow he idolizes anything rural and anything country and anything yeah. nature. And I always say this to him, you know, there's assholes in the city and assholes in the country. Sure. I mean, do you know what I mean? If you're born an asshole, you're born an asshole, no matter where. So your your skill set may be different. But um, what I do like about New York, because I'm like, why do I like New York so much? You know, it's been 21 years I'm here. My kids love New York. I love New York. And there's a grit in New York that's very similar to 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 the grit you can feel in the ranching. I'm sure that's true. And grit is the word um, that I always use. I mean, it's why when I came here um, in the 70s, I just felt so, you know, it was a very rough time for the city, but I, it was like falling in love. And it was, you know, and I'll never, I'll never give up my passion for New York. But um, there's a city near, we, we live outside New York. Um, and our studios are in the northwest corner of Connecticut, and there's a city near us that a lot of young artists are migrating to called Torrington, Connecticut. And um, mm -hmm. I think that it could easily make it as a place where a lot of young artists move because I always use the word grit. And that just sums up a kind of attraction that nobody wants things to be too clean and too perfect unless you're taking your kids to Disney World, which by the way, I loved. I think that that kind of grittiness that um, people that think about things or make things or write things, that, that there's such an attraction. I've always had such an attraction to that. And it's almost the way I, you know, think about cities, that they have to have that kind of edge for me to be comfortable there. I have to say that, you know, I've been through uh, uh, COVID. I've stayed in New York. Um, and I've been living here for 21 years. And the vibe right now in New York is one of the 
it's getting really exciting. The restaurant have expanded to the streets, right? Because they all make these makeshift extensions. So it has this different vibe and it's very, it's very, there's something going on in the energy of the city that it's feeling like there's some hope. New York is at its very best when it has to be resilient and it's in a resilient phase right now. And I was, you know, obviously I've been here for years and um, I remember right after 9-11 and a close friend of mine was creating, Jane Rosenthal created the Tribeca Film Festival. Yeah. Yeah. to um, kind of bring downtown back to life or try to. And I remember thinking, hats off to her. It's such a great thing she's trying to do, but the mood down here is, it's so, it's so dark and sad. And it was so amazing to be in New York and to consider, I had very young children, to consider whether or not we should leave and make the decision to stay. Um, and it was so amazing to see New York uh, come slowly back to life and do it. And I have confidence in New York's resilience, no matter when, what, where, how. It's beautiful now seeing the way things spring up, all of those little, you know, cabana, bungalow kinds of things in front of restaurants. And um, my son told me that um, he lives mostly mostly in LA, but really misses New York. And he came back a week ago and he, he said, mom, you can't believe Bushwick. It's like a party in the streets, like young people. He said, people are spilling out of clubs and just taking the party to the street because everyone is so happy to be out again that there it's, he said, it's like a celebration. I wanted to ask you, because I remember when we were talking, he was in Hong Kong. He was in, yeah, he was. I remember he was in Hong Kong and you were a little stressed because it was the protest. Yeah. And um, he said it was amazing and he promised me he did, he did sort of check it out because if I was that age, I would check it out too. But he had an extraordinary time and I, th I think he went to Taipei and he found that to be amazing. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm so happy that he got to do that kind of traveling, um, you know, yeah. pre Pre-pandemic, yeah. I know. Good memory. Yeah, I was concerned, yeah. If we would take about, talk about what's driving your work mostly today, what it would be? Um, I think that my work has always been about um, women and identity and my own identity, but um, it's morphing into, into such an expanded definition of identity and female, and especially because I've been privileged in this life to have a trans child mm -hmm. who I feel like is helping, leading me into the 21st century, assisting yeah. me with life in the 21st century. And I think that my, you know, when I grew up, um, gender, um, the, the definition of gender was so strict. Um, and I often tell the story about my mother was pregnant, of course, didn't know, had had two daughters, didn't know what she was going to have, prayed for a son and painted the room light blue as if to, you know, wishful, thinking. wishful thinking, an incantation, a witchery to make this child be a boy. And then it was a girl, my sis, little sister, Bonnie. And I remember being so embarrassed that my sister had a blue room 
and quickly, quickly changed the color to pink. But the definitions were so strict and always were. And I feel like this fluidity that I'm observing um, close at close range, that you know, the pronouns that we have are not enough. And I think that in my lifetime and in certainly in my children's lifetime, um, we're going to see this yeah. expansion of this definition. And that's really where my head is at with my work. Um, I'm trying to understand um, yeah. uh, how, how, how to expand this and how to expand this visually. It, yeah, it's one of the transformations that it's really um, taking place, um, which is so freeing, right? And it's such a natural, you know, I speak to my 13-year-olds and for them, it's like they're there already, you know? I am so tired of my friends that say, I can deal with everything, but I can't deal with a they pronoun. And I'm sort of like, you are being asked to do so little. Yeah. You can do this. And I'm, you know, tired of making excuses for it. It's just what what we are asked to do, we do, and we try to do more. I think at this point, you know, I feel very much like the world is not ours anymore. It's their world, and we need to be the guardians to preserve. I mean, my 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 driving force is it's it's sustainable change, get to climate success for. You know, I am in the situation that I have to talk to my children. I say, I don't think you're going to have biological kids. I don't recommend you having biological kids. I really don't because I don't know if if things don't look up better in eight years from now. It's it's going to be very rough to so you can adopt. But like I'm having these conversations. I think one of the things just to jump ahead that I really admire about you and envy about you is that your interest in sustainability in the planet is something that you can really express and live by in your work. I, the one main, I made several pictures about my idea of climate change and sustainability. And to make the pictures, I spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on little plastic objects that I then threw away. And I thought that expression of this subject was about the least sustainable thing you could do to make this picture that spoke to your concern and i i you know I, as much as i love the picture it was such a crazy um display of excess and non-sustainability to make it I, I know it's hard it's hard to imagine but it was like a color coordinated a 20 foot long color coordinated grid of plastic objects from one dollar stores that then you know were given or thrown away god knows where they are now but i feel that i admire and envy the way that you can live, um, live, sort of live that truth in your practice every day by the, by your carbon footprint, the fabrics you choose, the, I guess what we call dead stock. Um, um, and that, that's something that I have tremendous admiration for. Well, I, you know, it's, it's really like a practice in the sense that a lot of the things come in instinctual to me and I think it's because of my upbringing just like they kind of sharpen and focus into this kind of common sense and then you pair it out with sound engineering or or scientific advice that bases your intuition right and 
we're at a point that we really need to change. And we have very few years to get ourselves out of the fossil fuel addiction. And, and I just, it's, it's the thing that preoccupies me. Like I, it, it's like, I, like I'm possessed and by every year, by every month, I get more and more obsessed. Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't, I'm, I, I, you got, when you see climate injustice, how I saw in the, in the Horn of Africa in 2017 with the biggest drought, and I cannot bear the thought today that families have to choose between famine or migration is happening today. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about 85 million refugees through climate and, and conflict, half of them being children, and the number scaling up to probably 125 in just three years. These are save the children figures. And I, I just feel that I can't, you know, go into my matcha latte Netflix world and forget about this. You know what I mean? It's just like, I have to be there with it, trying to do what I can with convincing, talking, pushing, bothering, you know, whatever it takes, you know what I mean? To, to get people that have uh, way more influence, way more impact than I can ever have change the way they think. And I, I feel powerless to, to be honest, but that just doesn't stop me. But I can see that you're so animated when you speak about it. And the words tipping point, those words already happened. Yeah. And you know, my husband always says that it's really the only subject. Yeah. Because if, if, there's, uh, if there's no earth to live on for our children, how can we even deal with all of the things we're dealing with from, you know, um, all of the subjects that 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 we think about, that we deal with, LGBTQ rights, racial injustice, all of the things that we've been um, thinking about. And, um, climate migration is so much scarier than so many other kinds of things and can have more of an impact. Sometimes I feel like it is the only subject. And, you know, I've literally dipped my toe into it a, a few times in my work. But even even hearing you talk about it makes me um, more excited about embracing it again as a subject. I mean, it's so inspiring to hear you talk about it, honestly. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, when I picked up a camera in the 1970s, it was sort of a radical thing for both an artist to do and for a woman to do and to mm-hmm. use that as my tool. And what was very important to me was to have some distance, even though I'd had a traditional art education to not have to touch things directly. And I don't think it's a coincidence that for me, the work that I started to make during the pandemic was about being physical with my work again. I don't think it's a coincidence that the entire country in lockdown was talking about, you know, TikTok pasta and sourdough starters and um, getting physical and crafting, I think that there is a, sh- a shared sensibility. And I always feel like if I'm having an idea about something, except in my work, I don't have an original idea in my mind. If there's something I'm drawn to, then the rest of the culture is, because I feel like I'm a good example of the culture and my age group. And I think that everyone is trying to counteract the effects of the digital world with finding a physical place to exist, finding a human place to connect, which is a funny thing to say as we're recording a podcast and seeing each other on Zoom, but there are opposing forces that are, I think that's what you're talking about. 
And it's almost like an angel and a devil on your shoulder. And we're just hoping that, you know, good will win over evil. It can be digital by design and not digital by default. Like we're walking into it in a blind way, right? We can choose. This is the choice. This is that we can use the spectrum for 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 the positive, but it's a it, it's gone. The pendulum has gone too fast one way, so it needs to kind of center itself. Exactly, and I really believe in the pendulum in terms of things swinging certain ways to provide opportunities. You know, when things feel imbalanced, I think it's just it's really important and to understand the patterns of that um, historically. And, we are in an imbalanced situation right now. I mean, it's yeah. it's erratic and it's maddening. It's maddening. Like if you, if you follow the fossil fuel industry, um, it's it's just a madness, complete madness. But um, but I think there's changes. You know, I I became this obsessive of cutting out articles in the Financial Times on on, on my notebook, and they're all climate related. It's like I feel this need that if somebody's gonna find a notebook with my name, they knew I was recording the time. Oh, wow. I've started to do this in the last few years, but, you know, um, Andy Warhol had these boxes that were just cardboard boxes of time capsules and he would throw everything from his life into them, probably even a half, you know, a half eaten sandwich or whatever. And I've, even though the world is full of junk, I've started these time capsules with notes and things that I don't know what to do with because I thought someone will find this and understand the chaos I'm trying to keep it tidy and label the boxes, but it's something I never thought about before. And it sounds like your notebooks are your time capsule. Like you're so hell bent on having people know where you stood on these issues and what you saw and what you were looking at, you know, like record yeah. that idea of recording the present for the future and for your children, you know? Yes, I think it's for them mostly. Yeah. You know, it's for them to know that the mom stood on on her on the side, right? That I wasn't I wasn't neutral, I wasn't silent. Well, your whole endeavor, your whole practice, your whole um ambition, your whole everything is about the future, the way that you operate is for your children. I mean, there's yeah. no you know, that's why anyone who doesn't take fashion seriously I don't take them seriously. It's serious. It's a reflection of the time. It always has been. It always will be. It's very dismissible for some people, um, but it's super important. Yes, it's a part of our civilization. I don't think it's disappearing in any time soon. It's a it's a recording, an yeah. ongoing recording. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to thank you for having the opportunity to 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 speak to you. It's always so energizing and you know be on on a digital or in a lincoln center gala <laughs> uh, honestly my pleasure i was so excited about continuing our conversation and unfortunately 21st century life is thus this is how we continue our conversation right <laughs> yeah i'll take this i'll take yeah. this i prefer the physical one whenever we're in the same time, the same town, but um, I really, I really enjoy our exchange and, and thank you for, for. Thank you, for yeah, likewise. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to hear more artists and fashion designers in conversation, head to your podcast app and search for Art Matches Fashion where you can subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. 
You can find out more about everyone featured in these episodes at matchesfashion.com. And you can join the conversation on social media at at matchesfashion and at matches underscore man. Until next time, I'm Danielle Radoichin. This has been Art Matches Fashion. Thanks for listening. <laughs>